Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy. And I'm Steve Sademan. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. So Stephanie, you've returned from Brussels and everything's quiet on the home front, nothing going on in Canadian defense security. So you can just return your, your, your research without having to think too much about what's going on in Ottawa, right? Right. It's been so quiet this past week. It's been, uh, you know, interesting to, to follow, frankly. I was dealing with a jet lag last week, uh, having a really hard time recovering from it. But at the same time, just being feeling a bit deflated by all of the headlines that are popping up about the Canadian Armed Forces and, and various allegations of sexual misconduct and, and assault surfacing or resurfacing because some of these weren't new, but they were being uh, revisited because of some, some updates. So from the, the commander of military personnel to updates on Fortin and, and Dawes, we really had, I mean, we have a lot to talk about today, Steve, in terms of how these decisions are made, how to move forward with the, the journey of culture change in the Canadian Armed Forces and how these decisions get made, both in terms of military leaders and also, you know, civilian oversight of these decisions. So I, I don't know where to start, frankly, Steve, but maybe we should start with the conversation we had with the acting chief of defense staff. I saw that you wrote about this on your blog and feel like that's a good point of de- departure in terms of better understanding how these decisions get made. Sure. I think that was the interesting thing is that General Ayers, exec assistant, contacted me saying that the general had listened to our recent podcast and wanted to correct some things I I believed and said about personnel issues. So we had a half an hour conversation last Tuesday. And so this is now a little over a week. And he wanted to explain how they've changed the procedures to do a better job. So we talked about that. And then we talked about some other things. We talked a little bit about AUKUS. We talked a little bit about uh, other stuff in the Canadian defense sphere. But the the focus was on the, the personnel crisis. And so he explained to me that the way things used to work is that the his staff would put together a package that would go up to the Minister of Defense for all the generals and admirals being promoted, or at least uh, at, the, at the higher levels. And that package include all kinds of reporting evaluations. But one of the key things about the old system was that the evaluations that were done were the candidate that was being promoted would be able to say who they wanted to be the 360 degree evaluators, that is the, the superiors, their peers, and their subordinates that would have a chance to say whether this person is, is doing a good job or not. If that's the case, that 
the individual used to be able to say who who would be the ones doing the evaluations, then it's not much an evaluation because you can obviously pick people who are your cheerleaders or people who are intimidated by you and they'll say the nicest things. And so that might explain why the previous promotion processes were kind of broken because getting evaluated by people that you select doesn't lead to a really good evaluation process. So now the new process, which really is kicking in right now in September, October, in this cycle of promotions will be blind, anonymous, diverse. So that, that means, and random. So that means that uh, anybody going up for promotion for admiral or, or general will have evaluators who they don't know who's doing the evaluating. They will not have any choice over who's doing the evaluating. And that means that there'll be less role for intimidation or old boys networks or whatever playing a role. So that's a real important improvement in the process that was very striking. But to be clear, I think it's only starting now that this is a reform that AIR developed over the summer, and it's only going to matter for this upcoming cycle. I did ask about the DAW decision, and he accepted blame for, for making a mistake. There was a delegation involved, and, and I think that he obviously wouldn't do it the same way that he did it before. So there's that. And you know, the striking thing is, is that we had this conversation and the next day there was a story about, I want to say Cadeau, who was the candidate for Army Chief of Staff who had been on ice, essentially, that that the announcement was supposed to take place, the promotion ceremony was supposed to take place a month or two ago, and that was delayed. And then the day after that, there was the announcement that Lieutenant Lieutenant General Whalen was also being removed from his position as a personnel chief because of accusations made against him. And so I, you know, it's it's I have this great what I thought was a very informative conversation, but obviously he wasn't going to be talking about people who are under investigation. But I don't know if the process. I my guess is the processes that he talked about didn't apply to these two officers because those officers were promote, promoted previously or selected for promotion previously to this new process. But it shows that the, there are real problems in the, in the CAF and it's going to take a lot of effort. And it raises the question of whether Air is fit to serve if he has you know these past decisions of promoting Whalen and promoting Cadeau and these other things going on. And so just when I started thinking about that larger issue, then I was reminded that we have another general out there, another four-star officer out there, Admiral McDonald, who put out that letter this weekend, or, or last last Friday, and it leaked over the course of the weekend. We'll put a link on the on the show notes to that letter so people can read for themselves. But I've already bloviated enough about this letter, both in the media and on social media. So actually, Stephanie, you've you've heard about this. What, what's your take on it? You know, targeting serving general and flag officers and reaching out to them directly in this way obviously undercuts both the, the civilian and military leadership. So that's one point. And I think uh -huh. that's why you saw the acting chief of defense staff and the defense minister reacting so strongly. Character-wise, it appears entirely self-serving. So, you know, when you think about the CAF ethos and doctrine for, for leaders, you would, you know, probably think twice about what kind of leadership style is on this display with this letter. So I think if there was any hesitation about reinstating him, this letter more or less confirms he will not be coming back into the job, whether it's based on character or whether it's based on, you know, just procedurally um, him pressuring for a decision in his favor that really is up to the governing council and that governing council can act as it wishes without cause. And of course, he acknowledges that somewhat in the letter, but he's still attempting to interfere with the process, attempting to influence senior military leadership, which is which is inappropriate. So I know that some people also commented on the leadership aspect. And uh, I'm thinking about Leah West in, in particular, who's been very vocal on the topic of sexual misconduct since the beginning. And 
of course, offered her own disclosure, which was really brave. But because McDonald wasn't the only one to be making the news last week, and, and we could contrast sort of his words with Cadu's, mm -hmm. uh, I think that was very telling. A lot of people said, well, Lieutenant General Cadu, in responding to the allegations and, and the start of an investigation, offered to let the ACDS pick a different leader who would be unencumbered by, by allegations. So this idea that you're putting the needs of the Canadian Armed Forces ahead of your own mm -hmm. you know, professional ambition or aspirations really uh, demonstrates that the true ethos of putting service before self. So yes, I would have commented on, on the, the leadership aspect and character aspect in any case, but it was really on display this week and, and in sharp contrast to how we saw other leaders react to, to allegations, basically. So those, those are my immediate mm -hmm. hot takes. And sure. on the DAW issue, just circling back to that, because you mentioned it in reference to your conversation with General Eyre. One thing that, that you didn't mention, but that the ACDS mentioned in the news is that you know, although he accepts full responsibility and ownership for this decision, which is which is good, that earlier this summer he had asked the VCDS Lieutenant General Francis Allen to conduct this review of Major General Dawes's actions from several years ago, and then to you know take the necessary administrative action and make recommendations on his future employment. So I just wanted to add that because on the one hand, even though it was a decision that was you know, delegated, as you hinted at in your remarks, I really think that, you know, the ACDS ultimately taking ownership and responsibility for the decision is, is the right thing to do. And on the, on the subject of DAW too, you know, the way that, you know, the prime minister, the deputy prime minister and others have reacted to, to that decision of DAW being put in charge of, you know, re reviewing some files related to sexual misconduct and saying that the military just doesn't get it, I think is, is a missed opportunity to take ownership of sexual misconduct within the Canadian Armed Forces. I think since January, it's become clear with so many general officers and flag officers being put under investigation for sexual misconduct or sexual assault that the military can't solve this on its own. And sure, there's an external review and that's going to take, you know, 12 months to, to conclude. Uh, but in the meantime, I think it's unacceptable for civilian leaders, for politicians, for, you know, government to just, you know, point blame at, at the military and not take ownership of this problem or how things are going thus far. So just, just a few points, both on, on the DAW issue and of course on the, the letter that Art McDonald yeah. sent to all of the general and flag officer. I'm sure you've got much to add on, on this latter point. Well, I, I, you said everything I need, need to be said about the letter itself. I think it's insubordinate. I think that, that, that he's given more grounds, made it easier. If, if McDonald thought this was a way to leverage the government so that way give him a settlement, I think he blew that up because now they can just say, hey, you have a choice of either retiring or we're going to charge you for being insubordinate. So I think he only increased the leverage of the government vis-a-vis -vis himself. So he's got crappy lawyers. But I do think that the last point you made is really important, which is that the blame for this situation as it stands now is with the government that, yes, they sent a strong signal to McDonald that he was not going to become CDS when they promoted General uh, Air from Lieutenant General to General, but they didn't change his status from acting Chief of Staff, Defense Staff to Chief of Defense Staff. And maybe they were waiting until there's a new cabinet 
The analogy that I use is that oftentimes in sports, the owner of a team waits to replace the general manager so that the general manager can choose the coach. So that way the general manager has ha- has input on who the new, co- new coach is. And so maybe Trudeau is waiting for a new minister of defense to make the call on who the next CDS is, whether it's Air or somebody else. So I think that's the most favorable reading, but they've created this situation because they should have uh, this summer before the election was called, should have announced that Air was was the chief event staff and that McDonald would be retiring. They should have made that decision based on the information they had. Because again, the chief defense staff serves at the pleasure of the prime minister and of the cabinet. And it was clear from Mercedes Stevenson's reporting, from her interviews with the survivor uh, uh, in this case, that there was no way that McDonald would be able to serve as chief of defense staff. The chief has to be above reproach. And even if he was not uh, charged, this whole investigation hardly exonerated him. That was the other thing that was really appalling in the letter is his claim that he was exonerated, which led to the striking release of information this weekend that the provost marshal announced that not charging is not exoneration. So he, so McDonald faced pushback from the provost marshal. So we face a situation that has lagged and festered because Trudeau wouldn't replace his minister of defense last February when it, when it was proven that Khajit Saijan was not up to the task of, of taking care of this problem. And then they've let it fester again by not forcing McDonald to retire. That should have been something that happened this summer. Maybe McDonald might have gotten some settlement then as, 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 as a going away present. But this situation has continued to fester because of the government not doing what it says. And whenever Trudeau and Freeland say, well, the military doesn't get it, you know, it really it was very frustrating because civilian control of military stops at the prime minister's office. And so he needs to get it. He needs to exert the powers he has and he can do it. He can get rid of McDonald. And if he's not happy with air, he can get rid of air and he can find somebody else. He, but his entire uh, process of sitting back and blaming the military, but not doing what is within his powers really creates a vacuum at the top that, that, Trudeau and Cy John need to be acting and should have acted in February, and they should have acted this summer with regards to McDonald. And so what we have here is a failure for the civilians to control the military. And the military is messing up on its end because they're they're not being controlled adequately by the civilians. And the civilians are, are messing up on their end. Oftentimes in a civ mill crisis, it's one side or the other that we can point to. But in this case, we can point to both sides. And that's why we're not seeing a lot of change. And that's why... We aren't going to see any change until we have a new defense minister. It's just not going to happen. So right now, Trudeau says things and then walks away, which is very frustrating from the standpoint of civil civilian control of the military. Maybe one last point that you raised in your blog that made me think is what do we do with folks who've done wrong or made mistakes? Mm-hmm. How do we reinstate them, reintegrate them? And obviously, this is going to be an issue for General Carignan to grapple with in her role as uh, CPCC. However, Chief Professional Conduct and Culture, I should specify. However, you know, there are going to be some difficult decisions and some tough judgment calls. And I think that what your blog makes clear and what your conversation with General Air makes clear is that it's important to demonstrate some transparency in the way that those decisions are made and to explain the rationale. Because if there's a crisis within the Canadian Armed Forces that targets leadership, leaders really have to step up to explain the difficult judgment calls that they made. And General Air had an opportunity to do that with Baines, you know, after the whole uh, golf gate. And then we didn't 
hear similar rationale being offered for, for Dawes and his reassignment so that now he had a role to play on, on the sexual misconduct file, which obviously was going to play bad in terms of the headlines. And, you know, had we given had we been given a clear rationale for how mm. that decision was made, we may have better engaged with it you know, on this podcast or elsewhere. But when those difficult judgment calls are on the table, I think a lesson from all this and from the past few months is military leaders have to come out and explain very mm. transparently what goes into making these tough judgment calls or else they're not going to be able to regain the trust from, from serving members of the Canadian Armed Forces or from the general public for that matter. Yeah, and it might have been the case that that they couldn't communicate about it because it happened at the same time that the election was going on. And there is a, you know, there's a, fu- there's a, a gray area between what people, what people in government can talk about during the election. And there, there a lot of actors always err on the side of caution, don't talk about anything for that, you know, 30, 40, or 50 days. Uh, so it might have been about bad timing, but the overall pattern of this is very problematic. That that uh, Air did speak out about why he, why he kept Baines around, and it does. There is this big challenge of who do you forgive and who do you forget? Who do you drop? And it's clear that McDonald has no other job to serve because there's only one four-star job in the Canadian military unless you become the chairman of the military committee at NATO. And so there's only one person who can fill that job at any one point in time. So McDonald needs to leave the military. But Cadeau, you know, we don't know what his case is. We don't know about Wayland's case. I think, you know, there that Carignan will have to de- develop criteria or or decision rules that aren't 100%, you know, that, that, they, that they can't answer every situation, but have general guidelines. Like if it was a minor incident when you were in the Royal Military College 30 years ago, that's more forgivable than something that happened in the past 10 years when you're in a higher position of power. Because I, Again, for me, a lot of this comes down to abuse of power. And so if you've abused your power at the highest levels, then I do think it's time for you to go. And that might be one thing that separates Cado from Whalen from what we can what we can glimpse from the 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 news stories. It might be that one is historical and one is more recent. And that's one way to adjudicate these things. And the thing is to have standards that are that you can defend and explain. And that's gonna take some work. So they could have talked about Daw being different from other offenders because he didn't commit sexual misconduct. He had a lapse in judgment that was problematic. But then that's a different kind of thing than engaging in sexual harassment of your underlings. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I, th- I think there are lines that can be drawn, but obviously what would be great if we could start from scratch and have only uh, leadership that has never made a mistake, but we can't get there from here. And so we need to figure out what the rules of forgiveness are and work them out with the groups that are represent the survivors. Uh, so that way we have their input. And I guess one, one thing to mention is that uh, we're going to be talking a little about this in December because you've helped organize a panel at the uh, CSIDS event in Ottawa the year ahead where one of our panels is on organizational change. And so I guess this is one of the things that's going to come up is how do you develop new norms? How do you instill a, a, a new culture I guess before we move on to our interviews, we also want to discuss a little bit the border issue, which is we've the border will be opened on November 8th. Good news front, we Canadians can now travel to the United States. I could always do so as a dual citizen, but Stephanie, now you can go shopping in, in New York after November 8th. Are you excited about that prospect? First of all, I don't have time for shopping trips, <laughs> but it, it is nice to see that, that a decision has been made on this. And what was perhaps surprising about the, the timing of this decision is that it happened so many months after Canada made its own decisions about U.S. travelers coming to Canada. But 
finally came for November and I think I'll still be erring on the side of caution. So if I have a professional reason to go, I'll, I'll consider it carefully. But when it comes to just uh, traveling in the U.S., I think I'll, I won't go uh, just uh, crossing the border unnecessarily. I'll still err on the side of caution, but it's good to have resolution on, on this because, you know, the border was closed for more than 18 months and Everyone was sort of wondering, you know, when that decision would finally be made. And I think we can probably attribute the lengthy decision making to, to the fact that probably the U.S. wanted to have the same kind of approach for Canada and, and Mexico. And even though Canada made the gesture in August, the U.S. took uh, three, four months, additional months to make the decision wanting to tackle both borders on, on the north front and southern front. And the other thing that remains confusing to me, and maybe you have an answer to that question, but why was board, land border travel so different from air travel? Because it seemed that you know, lots of folks were traveling to the U.S. for non-essential reasons by air, but the land border for some reason was, was a lot stricter. I don't have an answer on that. I don't know if you have any hunches. My only hunch is a volume thing. It's just that there's probably more people cross the border by land than by air and, and through maybe, you know, I guess the number of border posts are not that different from the number of international airports, but the United States had an interest in having people from around the world visit the United States for whatever reasons. And whereas the Canadian thing was the Canadian thing. So I think they made that decision earlier on, on air travel for a variety of reasons, but I, I really don't know. What I do know is that to plug another event, CSIDS, the, the Ottawa-based research center, is going to have an event on November 9th in the afternoon at one o'clock where we're going to talk about border blues, which is who was affected negatively by the border closure. We haven't really talked, uh, we haven't really had much of a conversation about the international students, the people who are permanent residents, disabled people who all faced a variety of challenges because of the border closure. And even though the border closure is, is being suspended, it doesn't mean that this might not happen again. So we're going to have an event that happens to be accidentally timed for the day after this thing to address that. And while I'm plugging my events, I thought I should give you a chance to plug an event that Queens is running next week uh, in partnership with a bunch of CDSM partners. Yes, thank you so much. And you're no stranger to our KCIS uh, conference and, and it's happening next week. And speaking of the border closures, we grappled for a long time <laughs> with the decision of whether or not to have this in person virtually. And I'm so pleased that we made the decision to hold it virtually, not only just for going along with the pace of public health regulations, but because so many of our participants are, are either international or coming from the U.S. You know, we have partners at the U.S. Army War College with the Strategic Studies Institute. We have the NATO Defense College's research division out in Rome. And right here in Kingston, you know, Queens works with CATTC, which is the Canadian Army and Doctor Training Center, to put this conference together. And this year, we've opted for a different model. It's running from Monday to Thursday, October 25th to 28th from 11 to 1.30 every day. And the title of the conference is In Case of Emergency, the Military's Role in the Pandemic and Future Crises. So, you know, we've been talking a lot over the past few months on this podcast about the role that the military has had in pandemic response. And this conference is an opportunity to compare how the military has intervened in different contexts and also what that means in terms of managing future national emergencies. 
the same time, there are international organizations that have also stepped in to intervene in this crisis and a military alliance like NATO has also done so. Uh, so we're bringing in the NATO perspective and perspectives from allies and partners. And finally, just thinking through global threat assessments and how these should be updated in light of the vulnerabilities that have been made more salient by the pandemic. So we're, we're breaking these down, uh, these topics down into different panels. We have several keynotes, including from General Air, the acting chief of the defense staff, uh, Monday morning to kick things off. So if you'd like to register, it is a free virtual event and you can go to thekcis.org to register. And maybe we can include that link in the show notes. That's great. I've already registered. I'm looking forward to it. I think the idea of having rather than one all day conference, which is what we're doing in, in December, is having you know a couple hours each day is a really interesting different way to deliver this kind of event. So I'll let, let me know how it goes. I, I definitely am looking forward to it. I think that KCIS is really a great event. It's always been a great event. I have a couple of pictures of, of Kingston from my times of speaking. That used to be the gift was the, the standard picture of, a, of the waterfront. So I've, I've great fondness for, for that uh, event. And uh, I'm just sorry that we can't do it in person, but I look forward to next year doing it in person. And the last thing we want to talk about is that we've got an, a different set of interviews. We've done this before, where we bring in three officers from the Canadian Forces College's Joint Command and Staff Program. We have three majors, Major Hogan, Major Kylie, and Major LeBlanc, discussing the research they did that many of the officers who go through this program write directed research papers. And these are three award winners, and they cover things ranging from lethal autonomous weapons to how do how does the military maintain the ability to engage in combat in an era where there's so much technological change and procurement is so problematic. And then what is also on the lessons from the pandemic and before about how to telecommute in the CAF and in D&D. And what that what that does to uh, members and families, and and how it serves the CAF's interests, uh, how to figure out how to do telecommunication better, which is something that we're still trying to figure out as as academics. So we have three uh, of these officers who are essentially the future of the of, of the CAF that we'll be talking to, or I talked to, and uh, last week that we'll have as our interview segment. Have you come up with your Halloween costume yet? Yeah, I'm going as a killer panda. <laughs> uh, I'll send you some pictures. And uh, also, we'll have lots to talk about next time, too, because the, the new ministers will be sworn in. So that'll be something to track next week and to discuss in a couple of weeks. And what's your Halloween costume, Steve? I'm going to be in Copenhagen. So I'm going to be dressed as a tourist looking for to do comparative analysis of, of a Danish Halloween celebration. Oh, well, safe travels to you. <laughs> but uh, I think we'll have an opportunity to speak before then. And I'm glad that uh, you've got clearance for that for that travel. Uh, you'll see it's not all, that, not all that different from before. Appreciate it. So first of all, welcome to Battle Rhythm. Our first officer we'll, that we're going to talk to is Dan Hogan, sleepwalking into a brave new world, the implications of lethal autonomous weapon systems. So tell us how you got into this project and what did you discover? 
Well, Steve, thanks. First off, I just want to thank you for having uh, all three of us uh, on, on your podcast. You know, each of the topics that myself, Steph, and Mark have written about are something or topics that we're quite passionate about. So just having the opportunity to talk about them, uh, it means a lot to us. So again, thanks for, for having us. In, in terms of what I wrote about, so I wrote about the topic of, of lethal autonomous uh, weapon systems. This is uh, really a, a topic that greatly interests me. I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd. I, I love science fiction and in the talk you know, lethal autonomous robots or killer robots. That's often been a, a trope of, of many science fiction stories. And for me, it, it's really something that I wanted to dig into and, and research and make some recommendations on. Because for me, in my career, I, I've really seen over the last decade and two, just how we have used uh, armed, uh, unmanned aerial vehicles. And really, I, I think that is kind of the precursor for lethal autonomous weapon systems. And I, I really believe laws is going to follow a lot of the same sort of developmental and employment paths that uh, armed UAVs have. And it for me, it, it's kind of the topic itself is it's kind of like a, a, a slow moving a train wreck. We can see it happening. We can see the development of, of laws, work R&D is being done on these systems right now. And we really have an opportunity to affect how we employ these systems uh, in the future. I think oftentimes when it comes to technological development and, and weapon systems, they are developed and those sort of ethical legal discussions happen after the fact, after they're actually used in, in, in combat. I think with laws, really have a real opportunity to, to affect and uh, regulate them before they are put in, into um, employment. Uh, so yeah, this is kind of a big topic for me. I, I, I think we are heading down this road to toward the development of laws. And it really is a, a real meaty subject that I think over the last decade has uh, really broken out into quite the debate between academics, military circles, policymakers, arms control experts. And it's an important discussion that I think needs to be had. So what was the one big surprise that, that you discovered along the way through your research? One thing that you didn't expect? That's a really good question. I was a little bit frustrated just, so obviously uh, laws are being discussed right now in a number of international fora, and the chief one being the convention on certain uh, conventional weapons. But there really seems to be a lot of stagnation with regards to uh, those international discussions on, on regulating laws. Uh, it started out uh, with a, a fair bit of uh, enthusiasm by uh, all participants, but um, it's really become clear over the last few years that there are two real main Camps. There are proponents of laws, and then there are opponents. And yeah, the the debates and those legal discussions have, have really become hung up on you know things such as just defining what laws are. And, and again, I think for the audience, laws he is light is lethal autonomous weapon systems. That's correct. That's correct. So yeah, I, um, really kind of a little bit of frustration with with how slow the the debate has gone. We we have not depending on who you talk to laws have not been fielded any uh, big way, but uh, there are a number of precursor technologies that have been fielded that are, are basically uh, showing and indicating to us that, that there's a really high probability that these will be fielded just because of a number of trends that uh, militaries around the world are facing. So most of the people I know find the use of Terminator and other, other science fiction tropes to be highly annoying when they talk about lethal autonomous weapon systems. As a nerd, do you find it more useful and enjoyable to talk about Terminator and lethal weapon systems, or do you find it more annoying and, and, and problematic? In my research paper, I really tried to avoid those sort of 
I, I would say they are terms that have definite negative connotations. They, they tend to be used by opponents of laws quite a bit because they have quite a bit of resonance with the public. You know, you look at science fiction series such as the Terminator movies or the Matrix movies, those are profoundly popular movie series. <laughs> and that's sort of basically appealing to uh, the populace is really a, a useful way for opponents to win over the public to their camp, to their arguments. And, and you notice when it comes to proponents of laws, they very much try to avoid those sorts of science fiction tropes because they know the, the, the resonance. In terms of public opinion data on laws, it's really limited, but I would argue the popularity of some of those science fiction franchises really shows that this is, if you ask the average person on the street their feelings on, on laws, I think they can give you a pretty clear opinion on, on their thoughts on it. So does that mean you're hoping that the next Matrix movie will tank? Or are you, as a nerd, hoping that it is entertaining and interesting? I, I'm hoping it's entertaining and interesting. I, I watched the trailer just uh, about a week ago, and I was pretty excited. So yeah, I'm looking forward to its release. Let's hope it's better than the last one or two Matrix movies. Congratulations on winning the Bell Prize. We're going to move on to Major Mark Kiley, and he is the winner of the Generalissimo Jose Maria Morelos Award, which is an interesting name for an award. And he wrote his paper on constraining ambition, the delusion of a combat capable army. That sounds controversial. Uh, who's deluded and what are they deluded about? Thanks, Steve. Uh, hopefully it's not as controversial as perhaps just professionally stimulating. <laughs> you know, my, my, my interest kind of shares some of the, the DNA of, of Dan's paper. You know, Dan and I are, are, are peers. We've had the opportunity to work together a few times. And I think we both kind of grew up in an army where, you know, I joined in late 2006. So kind of imagine peak Western technological dominance of armed conflict, right? You know, this is after the Gulf War and, and we are the sole users of some of these advanced weapons technologies. Um, so I grew up in a military that, that trained us to fight, to be ready to fight in combat against kind of like a broad near peer enemy, like a non-specific but technologically inferior force. And, you know, as a, as a junior officer in training, like you don't you don't question this, you, you go forward and you learn how to do the business. You know, and as I've matured in the military and had more exposure to, to operations at different levels to join activities, and then also as, as events in the world have matured and unfolded, especially over the last 10 years, it started to become kind of more apparent to me that, that combat isn't some kind of homogenous, easily defined activity. Like it's a massive spectrum of possible activities against a huge spectrum of, of possible adversaries. Yet our defense policy says we're going to maintain combat-capable military forces, and and it essentially leaves it at that. There's some there's some context about potential threat streams, but but really there, there's no constraint as to what combat-capable is going to mean in a world where that could mean very very many different things. And if you're the United States military or China, for example, you have the resources, you have the people, you can say we are going to maintain a combat-capable military, and and you can do it across that broad spectrum of possibilities. But if you're a smaller or medium-sized force like like the Canadian Army specifically, we we don't have the resources to maintain capability uh, for every potential spectrum of conflict. So sooner or later, someone's going to have to make a choice about what our what our military, what our army specifically is going to be ready to do, so that we can put our resources and our and our people towards that that kind of spectrum of activities. Also, from from my paper, you know, I, I kind of looked at, at three streams. First, I, I wanted to really, for my own professional education, look at the history of Canadian defense policy and, and how we've ended up where we are today. And, you know, really seeing that there have been times when, you know, there was no clear geopolitical uh, threat or, or system, and we had very broadly defined defense policies. And there's been decades where we had super precise, narrow focus on, you know, NATO's central front against the Soviet Union. Like we knew exactly the Canadian army was designed to fight a Soviet mechanized rifle uh, regiment full stop, done. All of our defense organization was based around that for the army. But really, post 9-11, you know, while while the West was largely distracted by, by counterterrorism and insurgency wars, we kind of missed that our, our 
you know, older state adversaries like Russia and China were really making a huge leap in technology and thus becoming, you know, not just competitors, but in a lot of ways, technological superiors. And it, it makes this whole idea of being combat capable as a small military in a broad sense, much more tenuous and, and questionable. So I looked at, you know, the idea of is there such a thing as a type of army? And, and arguably, I, I decided that there is. You know, there, since 1996, there's been a, a naval classification system, the, the Todd Lindbergh system that's been widely accepted, that basically says, based on types of vessels and number of vessels and capabilities, that there are 10 types of navies and that you can clearly identify where each country sits on that spectrum. You know, so I looked at what, what would go into making a taxonomy for, for land forces. And I really looked at, you know, what's the purpose of the army? Do you have to defend your physical integrity of your country? Do you have to defend an international system? You know, so there's there's a broad spectrum there. What kind of missions do you want your military to be to undertake? Are you always going to be a coalition partner? Do you like to be able to do things alone? Do you want to lead the pack? Do you want to follow? And finally, I looked at, at how you define the threat. You know, you can you can do what the you know the American military is doing now, and you can clearly establish pacing threats. You can say we will match Russia, we will match China, or you can say I have. X number of dollars, and I will do the best I can inside this, this fiscal envelope. Or you can kind of find a way in the middle, which Canada has kind of always done with capability-based planning of saying, we're going to identify what we think are the key threats or the key risks or the key capabilities we'd like to maintain. And we're going to do our best to procure to that, even though that's not going to allow us to match the full spectrum of threats. So coming out of this model, basically looked at a model of, of 10 types of armies, you know, ranging at the high end from a, a forward power projection force that has nodes all over the world and is always ready to, to shape the international system, kind of all the way down to the lower end, which would kind of be sovereignty or constabulary forces, which are, are frankly just token militaries that exist to say that they, a state has an armed force and, and limited capabilities. But, but essentially, the, the last component of my paper was arguing that, you know, Canada doesn't have the resources for its army to be truly combat capable across this full spectrum. You know, and moving forward as our, as our adversaries start to develop increasingly complex and advanced weapon systems, you know, sooner or later, the, the, the mil leadership of the army is going to have to make a choice about what what type of army it wants to be and constrain its ambitions to, to focus our resources and our people best we can on a, on a more specialized niche of capabilities that we can execute you know fantastically rather than a, a broad spectrum that we are kind of challenged to achieve on, on any given day well this is a really interesting argument because when there was a defense review in 2017 it was really striking to see that Almost everybody, all the retired military officers kept on using the phrase full spectrum combat capable, suggesting that there's no way you can make any cuts because any cuts to any capability would make you not combat capable. And my answer to that was, well, we don't have aircraft carriers. We don't have attack helicopters. There's lots of capabilities we don't have. So this was political. I, you know, it was, a, it was a, strat a rhetorical strategy to try to make sure that, that nothing was cut. But I guess the question for me is, is given the militaries you've studied and the different configurations, what do you think should be the choices that Canada makes? whether it's bureaucratically possible or not. I'm kind of drawn back to an earlier round of defense consultations, like in, in 1993, you know, after the Cold War ended, the Soviet Union fell and the country was kind of flattering to determine what its defense policy would be. And there was a very similar public consultation where generals current retired and, and various other academics came out and they, they all argued for or against specialization. And a really interesting perspective came out from a group called the Canada 21 Council, released a report in 1994, and it was made up of a lot of, a lot of Pierre Trudeau's kind of foreign policy advisors and his former defense minister. And they, they had a really interesting quote that they argued that if we didn't specialize, we would become a miniature model of a traditional general purpose military, one with a little bit of everything, but not enough to be effective in any conceivable situation. And I keep, and I keep coming back to that. You know, if you count the number of brigades in the American army, or you count the number of the brigades in China or Iran's armed forces, and you come back to the fact that Canada is just never going to match at scale 
right? It's just not not going to happen. And then if you look at the scope, like if you look at the full range of adversary UAVs, like there's there's you know almost 40 countries now that that uh, that fly armed UAVs, like meaningful medium altitude armed UAVs that are very very capable. And we're we're still not in that space yet. You know, so so I would argue that we just don't have the resources to get anywhere near the full spectrum of capabilities that we've been arguing that we're, we're we need to maintain anyways. And, and I kind of think that personally, if Canada's geopolitical ambitions are to be a stabilizing force within the established international community and norms. I personally would like us to see a specialized more in that limited intervention, you know, uh, advanced capabilities in support of maintaining the international system, things like capabilities to support the UN in low to medium intensity conflict with the, the baseline defensive capabilities required to guard against things like lethal autonomous weapons that, that Dan was talking about. You know, I, I think that trying to stay fully invested in the, the full spectrum of offensive combat arms is just, just a it's a zero-sum game for us. We, we were not going to be able to afford the, to keep pace with technological developments. Whereas if we kind of restrained our ambition a little bit, we could have a, a more deep set of capabilities across a, a narrower spectrum of conflict that would allow us to really specialize and achieve excellence in, in those limited intervention, regional intervention, stabilization kind of roles, rather than than try to play in the developing space of you know multi-domain, large-scale interstate conflict, which which will always be you know extremely challenging for us. And I, and I think if we if we committed meaningfully to that even in the NATO construct, like if we put our marker on the table and saying, you know, we're going to take capabilities X, Y, Z, and we're going to be great at it. But that means we're out of the game of, you know, a heavy armored brigade. We're out of the game of heavy combat forces. We're out of the game of main battle tanks. It's a deliberate choice. And, and there's going to be some difficult conversations and a lot of difficult reorganizations and some hard conversations about our history and heritage. But it would allow us to find like a, a useful space in, in the NATO alliance and in the international community. Whereas right now, I think we're, we're floundering a little bit to, to sprinkle a little bit of army capabilities across like a huge range of requirements. Well, I, that's really very interesting. And I hope that your paper doesn't damage your career as says that Harvard or folks who are above you look at your paper and try to figure out whether you're going to. If you get rise higher, you'll you'll crass out the, the the tanks just like there were predecessors. We did without tanks for a little while, and we brought them back. So it's interesting how the, these things do go in cycles. So uh, I wish you luck, and I'm very sympathetic with the argument. I've actually long ago was arguing we have an army, navy, and air force pick two, and and give up mostly the third just because we, we we can't really seem to afford to do all three really really well. That's that's never going to happen. But I do think it makes sense to to think about what. For instance, the Army can and cannot do. Just like we need to think that the Navy can and cannot do that, that every time we build an all-purpose ship that can do everything, we, we build a really, really expensive ship that does everything somewhat okay, but nothing really necessarily brilliant. I think that's the, the joy of the F-35 was that we put everything in one plane and then it comes really ex super expensive and then we have a hard time buying it. So uh, I definitely am very sympathetic with your, your outlook. Our third person we're talking today is Major Steph LeBlanc, winner of the DRP Slam, wrote on telecommuting the CAF, post-pandemic potential, deliberate implementation of telecommuting, telecommuting uh, to support member, family, and CAF interests. I can't think of more timely thing as we are talking via teleconference, and this has become our way of life for the past 18 months. So what were you trying to figure out and what did you learn, Steph? Uh, thanks, Steve. Yeah, I think obviously I was looking to to do a bit of research on something that's a, a timely, uh, impactful thing that we I think we do really need to grip it as as the calf. Otherwise, it's going to get away from us as a you know, we all experienced it with the pandemic having 
launched many people into remote work and and we didn't really have a plan for it. It just kind of happened and we reacted. So what I decided to look at was consideration for whether this might have benefits or detriment in the future and how the CAP should approach that and, and then just make a deliberate plan to move forward. And so with my research, obviously nothing's going to be 100% perfect or 100% terrible. So there were a lot of shades of gray, a lot of interdisciplinary aspects to consider, a lot of overlap of different functions that I might not have at first glance considered. And so as I got into the research, a lot of aspects to unpack there. And I think so largely, uh, yes, I do see that there is benefit. Of course, the implementation, um, it's not lost on me that the Canadian Armed Forces or militaries in general are a lot different than than corporate companies and, and public service and government employees and that because there's a lot of other in-person aspects that, you know, camaraderie and, and morale and, and the hands and feet skills that we need our folks to be good at. So there needs to be somewhat of a balance to that. I don't think it can be an all and I don't think it can be a none. I don't, I don't think we can shove this genie back in the bottle. You know, it's, it's, it's happened and, and it's been proven that we can function to some degree while working remotely. And so I think that the generation of, of tomorrow has placed a lot more emphasis on the achievement of work-life balance. And that being the case, a lot of, you know, the up and coming new recruit generation potential, if, if they don't see the flexibility in the CAF, it lacks, the, the CAF loses their ability to be really competitive as an employer of choice moving ahead. And so that's, that's some of what I was able to unpack in my research was considering that it's, it's bigger than just the needs of the CAF right here and right now in the current membership. It's about recruitment and about retention and, and all of those things. Is there any data yet and how people are reacting to being online? Is that, were you able to build on that? There was. I did find a bit from, from industry current to the pandemic. I was also, uh, I took a look at uh, New Zealand, Australia, and uh, Germany for mm -hmm. their militaries do offer a bit of flexible work uh, approaches. And so some of those, I mean, I don't believe truly that we can use an in-pandemic situation everybody got thrown into it. We got kids working at school from home at the same time. Like that's not a fair test ground to say moving forward, yes or no, uh, remote work is a good idea or a poor one. But that being said, even at that, there are a lot of people who gleaned benefit from working from home during the pandemic setting with their kids at home screaming while they're trying to work. They even still found benefit to some degree for that, they appreciated not having to do a commute, you know, appreciated some of the, the quieter moments where there's not everybody working together in a bullpen and you can hardly hear your own thoughts. So there are some positive aspects there. Of course, though, there is the, the detriment to, you know, the, the degree of separation of work and life. There's no physical, I leave the house and I go to work. There can be a lot of spillover for that and seeing the home as, as what they call it as a place of demands rather than like a place of restoration. There's drawbacks to that as well, but largely the reason Research from COVID suggests in industry that that folks are interested in pursuing more working from home opportunities post pandemic. And of course, these other armed forces who have successfully implemented plans to allow their folks to work remotely to some degree or having some amount of flexibility, at least were very positive. And that was based on their own research, suggesting that that somebody was looking for something like this. And, and rather than being reactive to a pandemic situation, they were already well poised to be able to, to just fall into that remote working situation because they had gotten ahead of the curve. Is there some way we could sort the military into extroverts and introverts and, and give the introverts more opportunity to work from home and extroverts give more opportunities to work in, 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 amongst each other? So I, I certainly, uh, there's some degree of, of choice and personality traits and applicable to that. And so I had noted that 
it has to be up to the member to request such a thing because some people are just not built to work at home in their basement by themselves for a whole year, maybe <laughs> speaking from experience from JCSP 47, but yeah, it definitely needs to be at the request of an individual and overlaid to that. Of course, that's on the personal side. The institution needs to be able to support a person working from home. So I made examples of, yeah, you can't see a vehicle tech taking a truck home to work on it in their own garage. Certain, <laughs> certain jobs, you just, you got to be at the shop to do it. Whereas, you know, there are some clerical functions, administrative type roles, a lot of that sort of thing can be done from home. So what I've proposed was that we as an institution sort through all of the positions. I mean, there's a number of codes for various jobs anyway, mm. language requirements, rank, this and that qualification, add a column to say work from home a bull or not. And if it's a yes, then if later on top, layered on top of that, the individual requests it, then mm. it's a matter of a discussion with the chain of command to say, okay, how many days per week? Or I've also proposed that there could be two complete options. So there could be partial telework a couple of days a week and you avoid having to drive and have your commute. Mm-hmm. Also to avoid having postings, complete remote work. Maybe somebody flies in once every month or two to have some in-person time, but ultimately they don't get posted. And so that would alleviate a lot of those one-year moves and you moving every summer and, and moving... Um, your family uprooting everything every year. So it's there's benefit to be had, but of course that does come with some of those drawbacks as well. And so I take it from your comment that all three of you have been entirely online for your Canadian Forces College experience. Is that, is that right? That's correct. So I have a number of who I would call close friends now who I've never actually met in 3D real person life. And uh, yeah, it definitely had its drawbacks to that. I mean, I think we did our best to recreate some of the camaraderie. You know, we had Zoom coffee breaks and beer calls and things like that, but it, it's, no, it's not the same as in person at all. Now, as, as leaders of the armed forces, when you're going to do your next job, how comfortable do you feel about managing people through online versus in person? Is this something that, that you feel comfortable with, or is it something that you feel as if there's going to be a lot missing if you, if you can't see people on a regular basis? For me personally, obviously the pandemic started several months before we all started on, on JCSP. And so we had a little bit of an experience with that. And I, I, think that I feel comfortable with it, but I think that there's a lot of onus on the leadership to make sure people don't feel isolated, left out, like they're missing information. Cause that's the, the propensity is to think that you're, you're just out of the loop and you're not understanding mm-hmm. something, or you're not fully up to speed on, on the information that's being passed. I think regular touch points, even, you know, zoom rather than just a phone discussion or something. So you can actually see the person's face. And if they're telling you they're okay, and maybe they're not, it's harder to hide when you can see them Mm -hmm. and look them in the eyes. And so for me, I think certainly challenges, and I think it, it demands more of leaders in this capacity, but I, I think that there's also benefit to be gleaned from the fact that people might be more in their comfort zone and they might be more productive as long as they know what the end state is supposed to be. I was, I was working for the, the vice chief of the defense staff at the time when the, the pandemic started and, and we got in a very good rhythm of, of a morning VTC, like all stations. And I found that incredibly effective because we could, we could all look each other in the eye and have a great sense of what everybody was doing and working on. But we, we developed, you know, months of, of teamwork and, and cohesion and friendship before that. And now I'm, I'm, I'm in the strategic joint staff. I, I go in every day, but we have a number of members of our team that are all working primarily remotely. And I, I haven't yet met in person. And I also know some people who've started new jobs, like they're onboarding in the remote context and, and they're having a bit of a struggle, just feeling like they're part of the team. So, you know, I, I, I have seen kind of both sides of it. And I think we're just 
we're going to learn at every level of the forces kind of the best practices for how to have those touch points in person where we build cohesion, we get to know each other, we get that sense of trust, and then that enables us for more flexible remote work. You know, I, I, don't, I, I don't personally believe that that all-in remote work is, is a great model for the armed forces, but I've certainly seen a, a benefit of, of the COVID situation being a, a more trust in the concept of people, you know, being accountable for their deadlines and their, and their outputs, not their time. So I've seen a lot more flexibility for people leaving early to go get their kids or look after a sick child or relative with the full understanding that like, yeah, you've got access to systems, you'll get your work done and, and we trust each other. And that for me has been the, the great thing to see is that we, we, we gained that confidence with remote work and we kind of regained a little bit of our confidence of like people are going to manage their lives in, in jobs that allow that and they're going to manage their work and, and we can trust them to do both. And, and that for me has been a great thing to see that that level of trust is kind of being backed up by a couple requirement to go to remote work. Well, that's really good because I know that in many offices, both military and otherwise, there's a temptation of, well, if the boss hasn't left yet, I can't leave. And that is, you know, can be pretty damaging to work-life balance. So Mark, you're, you're onto the joint, the strategic joint staff. Dan, what, what's your net, net, net job these days? I'm uh, the, the acting G of 33 in army headquarters. Uh, so working uh, very close to, to, to Mark at Carling. And what is G33 for those who are not familiar with it? Uh, so I deal with the uh, current operations uh, of the army. And so does that mean you're, you're communicating to the folks in Latvia and Ukraine what they're doing, or is it more about operations domestically? It, it's more about force generating. Uh, typically when, you know, our forces uh, get cut for operations, uh, our uh, Canadian Joint Operations uh, Command is responsible for them. So more the, uh, we're dealing more with the institutional army, preparing those forces okay. for those operations through force generation. And Steph, what are you doing these days? So uh, the job that I've just taken over this summer is as the senior aide-de-camp to the governor general. So uh, I've got the opportunity to be uh, very much working in person uh, to, with Her Excellency, uh, Mary Simon. And it's been an interesting opportunity so far. But I mean, this week right now, I'm, I'm working from home. I'm in Ottawa on IR and uh, I'm in Kingston at my house. Uh, so it's been a nice balance because we, uh, we have a rotation of in waiting, next in waiting and out of waiting. So when I'm out of waiting, I'm not terribly responsive to the immediate needs of the Governor General. Mm -hmm. So there is flexibility in that as well. Well, I want to thank you all for taking time to, to speak to me and to be on Battle Rhythm, but I hope that you can manage your battle rhythms in this, this difficult time. Your three papers sound really fascinating. And it's and what I really like about it is that there are three very, very different topics, which means that you know, we have not just one perspective coming out of out of the Canadian Forces College through this uh, JSP program, but that you guys are encouraged to to follow your interests and have you know very different questions and follow them where they lead you. Which is what I love about the academic lifestyle is I can just you know study whatever I want. And it's glad to glad to see that you guys are are, are have a, a nice imagination about all these different kinds of issues. So I wish you luck in your your new gigs. My experience with military is that every gig lasts for what one to three years. So you're always thinking about the thing after that after the thing you're doing so uh hopefully you'll you'll enjoy this thing and, and then the next thing will be something that 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 is also of great interest to you thanks steve fine steve thank you all right for this week's rnr segment i've got three uh, recommendations that are online. <laughs> I'm still reading a book that I haven't gotten through yet, so I, I can't read a, recommend another book yet. But 
I just found this Dutch movie, Forgotten Battlefield on Netflix. It's about the Dutch when they thought the war was over, but wasn't quite over yet. And the struggles they face in a region that the Canadians ultimately were the ones who liberated. So Forgotten Battlefield, it's uh, dubbed. And so far, it's really a, a, an interesting, engaging movie. An old movie, not that old, but old enough, is Super 8. I just bumped into it again. And it's a delightful movie about kids making a, a movie and suddenly there's a train wreck that they capture on film. And it's a train wreck that's caused that, that leads to an alien being released. So, so suddenly it's about trying to escape from an alien, so escape from the government and the military that are trying to control the town. It's a very Spielbergian kind of movie that Spielberg was involved with. And it's a really fun engaging movie very very feel you know very much a, a piece with things like uh et so i recommend that and finally just like everybody else i'm watching squid games or i finished watching squid games it's brutal and violent so if you don't like violent tv then don't watch it i watched it dubbed and so there's a little bit of lot stuff that's lost in translation but it it addresses class politics and sort of the other stuff. And it, I found it really engaging. And uh, it's 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 the hip thing for folks to be talking about. There's already a Saturday Night Live skit. And yes, there are Halloween costumes dedicated to it. So that's my uh, suggestions for the next couple of weeks. Have a good week. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.